That's very macho. Thank you. Oh, I'm on. <laughs> if anybody's joining us uh, live at home, welcome. We have a group here. Uh, Easter Sunday, as they call it, Resurrection Sunday, and we are in Revelation chapter 19, part 2. Um, just to let you know, we are going to uh, do a communion here. So we're just going to take a few minutes to take communion for those who want to and, uh, and uh, remember the Lord Jesus Christ and first his uh, birth and his life and his death. And then, of course, today they, we uh, look and focus more on his resurrection from that death and from the grave. And uh, we talked this morning about that whole package is a great template for our lives that we're born again. We walk in the spirit and uh, we die daily to our flesh, which is so difficult. And we not only die to our flesh, but we rise to new life every day in our Christian walk. Rise to new life in the Spirit. So that template is there. Uh, you know, as well as I do, we're just going to start with a prayer. And then you're welcome to come up. Uh, we'll play one song that we'll play overhead and uh, take the elements. There's actual real wine on this side and unleavened bread and unleavened bread and grape juice on that side. And uh, you, those of you who are at home, that song will play. You'll see the words, and then when it's, when it's done, we'll come back, and people here uh, t- take the, uh, the elements as you want, and uh, we'll go from there. So let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, uh, of course, around the world, the celebrations are focused on your resurrection. We are so grateful for the knowledge of it, and we pray that it will have application as well as everything else you did in your life to our daily Christian walk. We pray that you'll sustain us by your spirit. You'll be with us as we take these elements and reflect upon you, your life, death, resurrection, and um, that we will be able to grow in our study of revelation uh, as it manifests, especially today, of you, who you are, what you have always been, and we pray that we will be better Christians when we exit this room in this short while. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Okay. Last chapter detailing the end of the whore of Babylon, which we have interpreted, interpreted, which we have interpreted, <laughs> communion wine. I think there, anyway. Uh, we have interpreted as the fallen Jewish nation who has turned against the bride of Christ, who are the Christian believers who have come out of the Jewish nation and out of the Gentiles. And so what we are aiming for is, we've been reading about in all the earlier chapters about this, this um, whore of Babylon, the Jewish nation non-converted to Christ, persecuting the bride. And now it's almost over with 19. It's going to end. And 20, 21, 22 are going to open us up to the marriage of Jesus to his church. And we're going to get to that in the next week, actually. We're going to start in on 20 after we finish 19. So uh, we ended last week with a statement from a, uh, a preterful, preterist um, expert named David Chilton. And he said, the destruction of the harlot and the marriage of the lamb and the bride are correlative events. So they're correlated together. The destruction of the harlot and the, and the marriage of the bride to Jesus are correlative events. And we said that the correlation is seen in chapter 17 and in chapter 21. So uh, let me just give you a couple correlated uh, passages. In Revelation 17:1. We read, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated upon many waters. The correlative passage is in Revelation 21.9, which we'll get to. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls of the seven plagues and spoke to me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. 17, come, I'll show you the whore. Come, I'll show you the bride. In 21. Again, back in 17, verse 3, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. Then you go to Revelation 21.10, And he carried me away into the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy Jerusalem coming down out of the heaven of God. So we have correlative passages in, in 17, speaking of the whore, and then we have Passages in 21 speaking of the bride. Just wanted to point that out. That's what's meant by that. Verse 8 of chapter 19, we left off at 7. To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Remember, she's the bride of Christ. She is all the saints who have at that time believed on Christ and the fine linen represents the righteousness of those saints. Um, of course, this imagery is talking about uh, the purity of the lives of the saints at that time. Now, Jesus told a parable that I'm sure you're going to remember in Matthew chapter 22, beginning at verse 2. Let me read it to you. And in this parable, he speaks to this clothing that you would wear to the wedding of the bride to the groom. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, that would be God in this parable, which made a marriage for his son, which would be Jesus in this parable, and sent forth his servants, which would be the prophets, to call them that were bidden to the wedding. Those who were invited to the wedding of his son were the Jews. 
the prophets called to the Jews and said, Come to the wedding, the house of Israel. And it says in verse 3, they would not come. And he sent forth other servants, Jesus says. These are the apostles. That's how I interpret it. Perhaps saying, tell them which are bidden, which are invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatted lambs are, uh, my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage is what it says here in this parable Jesus tells. Verse 5, but they, those who were bidden to the marriage, Jesus, I mean the children of Israel in Jesus' day, made light of it. They didn't consider it a very important thing. And they went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. Elements that were mentioned as part of the commerce of Jerusalem in chapter 18. That Jerusalem was known for its commerce and its merchandise and its, its goods that were eaten. Farms and merchandise. So we have a play there. And verse 6, And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. So they went forth and said, Tell them, hey, it's ready. They made light of it though. And they went their ways to the farm and other to merchandise. And the rest of them took his servants the apostles, and, treat, and treated them spitefully and killed them. Remember, this is Jesus telling this parable well before any of this happened. Verse 7, But when the king, this is God, heard thereof, he was angry, and he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Jesus tells this parable, picturing the end of Jerusalem, the end of uh, the city of uh, Jerusalem in 70 A.D., the parable isn't chronological, it's just Jesus telling the story, so don't try to make it fit in a chronological order. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were invited were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you will find, invite to the marriage. Everybody you see, invite them to this marriage celebration. So the servants, the apostles, I believe, once the gospel was available to all nations, uh, meaning to um, Cornelius and his family, and then through Paul. So his servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. Catch that. Both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, now here comes the part about clothing, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how camest thou in hither and not have a wedding garment? And he was speechless. He didn't know what to say. I was invited to come to the wedding. I think the... the it, they're invited to come and participate in this. It was for the house of Israel. They rejected it. So now it goes out to all the highways of all nations and they show up. But then the, the, the king comes and he says, how come you have not dressed in the appropriate attire? Then said the king to his servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, many are called, few are chosen. You see? So this is a picture 
of the first church. The nation of Israel had rejected the invitation to the wedding. So what it says is, my servants go out into the rest of the world and invite all, good and bad, to come into the, to the church. So we had good and bad in the church at that time. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 says, listen, you're gonna go, the, the kingdom of God is like a net thrown into the ocean. You're going to pull out and you're going to get good fish and bad fish. You're going to have wheat and tares. You're going to wait till the end before that separation takes place. Gather them all together. Let them all come into this wedding ceremony, so to speak. But let me tell you something. Those who come in under false pretenses of just having been perhaps just nominally believers or whatever, they will be called out for not wearing the robes of righteousness, which is what it, the Revelation calls the dress the bride is in, that they are the righteousness of the saints. So it seems prior to the marriage, God inspects the clothing of the bride of Christ and those who were not clothed in fine linen, John, who, uh, which again, John calls the righteousness of the saints. It says, Jesus says, were bound hand and foot and cast to a place called outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I take this to mean in context of everything else I see in, in the New Testament that these are those who believed on Christ, but they were not strong in their faith. They may have been uh, everything that Paul warned the early church believers to be. So they may have had a faith, but they were not dressed in robes of righteousness. They weren't truly the clean bride. So they were cast into Sheol, which still existed, the dark place, where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth for for having been a believer, but not having produced the fruits thereof of righteousness that were required to be the bride. We know later in Revelation that Sheol will give up its dead. It's going to give everybody up and they will be judged if their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we used to say, why would someone be cast into hell? Hell gives up its dead and then they're judged to see if their names are even written in there. It seems like there would be the chance that their name could be written in there. That's what I think is true. That these weren't the bride, these weren't the righteous believers, but they were people who trusted in Jesus. They just didn't pr produce the fruit that was commensurate with being part of the bride. So to me, uh, that's what this is talking about. Verse 9, Revelation. And he said to me, write... Blessed are they which are called. Remember in the parable, Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. Here he says in Revelation 9, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, these are the true sayings of God. The angel instructs John to write these words. Blessed are they who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In other words, an invitation went out to others, Gentiles as well as Jews in verse 9 through 10. And only those with the proper wedding garment were allowed to remain. That's the verses 10 through 14. Those who lacked these garments remained in outer darkness, were not part of the, of the pure bride of that day. Though, in my opinion, they will be reconciled by their faith after they have experienced the weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth in Sheol, which was done away with. Verse 10. John says... And he's, there's a line here that's really strange. And I fell at his feet to worship him, the messenger. And he said to me, see thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant 
and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, I've heard that bantered about my whole Christian life. I hear people mention that. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And it's really difficult to understand what that means. So first, let's talk about John is tempted to bow down and worship this being uh, who's given him the message. He doesn't say what prompts him to do it. We can only, you know, it could be all the hallelujahs we talked about last week or the week before that are going on. It could be that the wrapping up of everything bad is happening and he's becoming wrapped up in the whole vision of goodness and he's, he's thinking this angelic being who's full of brightness might be the Lord or something. We don't know. All we know is that he was overwhelmed enough where he wanted to bow down to this heavenly being and, and the messenger prohibits him and says, don't do it. Don't, see that you do it not. I am, he reveals his, himself, thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, and he says, worship God. Now, many people say this is an angel. To me, this person is saying, I too am one of the apostles, or I am a prophet, I am a fellow servant, I am, uh, and if people say, if, if they say it's an angel, I say it's a man, who was once a man, and if he comes in the form of an angel or whatever it is, I don't know how to explain it, but whatever this person being was, he was a fellow servant and of the brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. So when, it, when he says that, it seems to me we're talking about it in the very least a prophet and in the, in the, at the most an apostle, one of John's fellow apostles. Uh, which is another way of just saying, don't worship me, I'm not God. So don't worship me, but right after John is given uh, this, he says, for, I'm a, I'm a fellow, uh, I am of the brethren that have a testament to Jesus, worship God for, he adds, or in relation to this statement to worship God, he adds, the for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He just said, I am one of the brethren that has a testimony of Jesus. And now he says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, I'm going to cite two different old-time Bible scholar guys who I think put the Bible scholars in our day a little bit to shame. There's other pretty good ones, N.T. Wright and a few alive today. But these guys, I think, had more street cred. One is Adam Clark, even though he had unusual ideas on some things. He says, as this is a reason given by the angel why he should not worship him, the meaning must be this. I, who have received this spirit of prophecy, am not superior to you, who has received the testimony of Christ to preach him among the Gentiles. For the commission containing such a testimony is equal to the gift of the spirit of prophecy, or, quote, the spirit of prophecy is a general testimony concerning Jesus, for he is the scope and design of the whole scripture. To, get to him give all the prophets witness. Take Jesus, his grace, spirit, and religion out of the Bible, and it has neither scope, design, object, nor end. So what Adam Clark there is saying, what that means, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, in context with 
this angel or this messenger saying, don't worship me, worship God for the testimony of Jesus' spirit of prophecy, is like saying, I am your fellow servant, John. I have the testimony of Jesus. Others have the testimony of prophecy. They're one in the same. We're all brethren. We don't worship each other. Worship God. That's how Adam Clark is describing it. Now, uh, Barnes says, it's a little bit longer, the meaning here seems to be that this angel and John and their fellow servants were engaged in the same work, that of bearing their testimony of Jesus. Thus, in this respect, they were on a level and none of them should worship another, but all should unite in the common worship of God. No one in this work, though an angel, could have such preeminence that it would be proper to render the homage to him that was due to God alone. There could be but one whom it was proper to worship, and they that were engaged in simply bearing witness, whether through testimony or prophecy, should not worship each other, is what the message comes through as. He says, in other words, the design of prophecy is to bear testimony of Jesus. The design of prophecy is to bear testimony of Jesus. This language does not mean that this is the only design of prophecy, uh, but this is its great ultimate end, that all Old Testament prophecy is a witness testimony of Jesus. So prophecy and testimony of Jesus are synonymous. And whichever one you have, they're equal in God's eyes. Whether you are Isaiah or whether you're Peter, they are one and the same. Peter and Paul and James and John having a testimony of Jesus, witnessing him, actually knowing him, versus men who prophesied about him, they are equal, one and the same. So it seems to me that most commentators believe that's what's being said here in relationship to servants who might have the... Uh, inclination like John did to fall down and worship someone who was glorified uh, speaking to them from heaven. Uh, when John an apostle who had the testimony of Jesus firsthand received this messenger's words, he for some reason thought this was reason to worship the messenger, as we said. And what the messenger says, don't do it, worship God, testimony, spirit of prophecy, one and the same. So, let me ask you, the testimony of Jesus, which we would say is someone who actually has seen and lived and worked with Jesus, is it equal to the spirit of prophecy? And then reverse it, is the spirit of prophecy equal to the testimony of Jesus? And... That's what it's sort of like the old, that, that this messenger is telling them. If they are reversible and if they are equal, then what we can say is there is not a Jew on earth who is justified for missing the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. Because if the prophecy of old is equal to the testimony of Jesus, they should have been fully aware of who he was when he arrived. And that is why some Jews did see him as the Messiah, knew he was the one, and were able to believe him. So when we kind of, we kind of think, well, they didn't know, they did, have all the they did have all the prophecies of Jesus in hand. 
And if it's equal to a testimony of Jesus, they should have acquiesced to him as Messiah as easily as someone who was present with him and acquiesced to Jesus as the Messiah. So there's only one way to kind of prove this and see if the prophecy of Jesus is the testimony of Jesus and if the testimony of Jesus is the prophecy of Jesus and they're one and the same. And that's by going through every book of the Bible and citing the passages that apply to each book, uh, either in prophecy of Jesus or in testimony of Jesus. That's, what, that's how we would break up the Bible. Old Testament is prophecy of Jesus. New Testament is testimony of Jesus. Well, I got tired of writing here. <laughs> this is how it works with me. I am so ambitious. And then Patrick and I got in a fight right around here. And, and we had to make up and all the drama that comes with Patrick and I. So after we're hugging on each other and weeping, weeping and everything, I said, shine that. We'll just, I'll, so I'm going to read them to you. I'm not going to read all the passages. I'm just going to read you what the passage says in each of the books. And let's first establish the prophecy of Jesus in the Old Testament. And, and you might think, well, that's, gonna, that's quite a bit, Sean. Well, it's kind of important because we're trying to do a semi-exhaustive study of Revelation relative to Scripture. And this passage is difficult. And I hear it cited a lot. People will say, the testimony of Jesus is the gift of prophets, or whatever they say. And I've always wondered, what does that really mean? So, okay. Genesis. 315, the Messiah would be born of the seed of a woman. All the way, the first, uh, the third chapter in Genesis, we have that. Uh, and it's seed of the woman, not seeds. So that is why most scholars think that's a prophecy of the Messiah. Uh, Genesis 12, 13, the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Am I looking here? I'll look here for those of you who want to look on the board. Um, the Messiah would be a king in the line of Judah. That's Genesis 49.10. Uh, he would be typified in the person Melchizedek. I would say Melchizedek is some sort of theophany and that Christ is the embodiment of that theophany, not that Melchizedek was Shem or a person. I stand by the idea that Melchizedek was a theophany of some sort. Um, the life of Isaac, uh, the sacrificed son, Genesis 22, is a type of Christ. And the life of Joseph, the rejected brother who was sold by his brethren, all in Genesis 37. So there's Genesis. Exodus, typified in the life of Moses, the deliverer. Moses led the children out of bondage from Egypt. He's a type. The Passover lamb, Exodus 12, the, the lamb, which is celebrated right at this time of year. Um, the manna from heaven, bread from heaven. When Jesus walked the earth, he said, I am the bread of life. The Jews would hear it. They would know. And, and, but, you know, um, when, he, when Moses strikes the rock, the first time water flows from it, he goes back the second time and God says, don't hit the rock anymore. We only hit the rock once. He gives water freely. Don't hit the rock, Moses. Moses is angry. He hits the rock. God still gives them water, but he was not allowed to go into the promised land because of that act. Meaning Jesus is only crucified once. He is the water, the living water there. Uh, the tabernacle, the brazen altar, the lampstand, the showbread, all of that are types of Christ. Leviticus uh, 1 through 7, sacrifices and offerings, the Jewish festivals, the scapegoat, the person and the duties of the high priest, all emblematic of Christ. 
The Messiah would be king. Numbers 24, 17 says he would be king. Typified as the bronze serpent that was wrapped around the pole and that we see outside of uh, chiropractor or medical facilities. The healer uh, there. And if you look to him, the children of Israel, all you got to do is look and you will be healed. Um, and then, of course, we have the water from the rock in Numbers 20. Deuteronomy, the Messiah, would be a prophet. This is really important, that study. If you want to see a really interesting study, study how the Messiah would be a prophet. And uh, also the Messiah would be worshipped by angels. That's answered in Hebrews and in Luke as well. And he would be typified by cities of refuge that the nation of Israel would have. They would establish these cities of refuge. And if somebody accidentally killed somebody, the law would say, take that person's life. They could run like a mad dog across the desert, huffing and puffing, arrive to the city of refuge and have um, sanctuary there. And until everything was settled and the anger of the people who was killed accidentally, the family were able to settle down and work things out. That person had sanctuary in Christ, the city of refuge, picturing him. Uh, we see that uh, he's the captain, captain, captain of our salvation in Joshua, Jesus' name in the Old Testament, Yeshua, uh, that there is salvation in the promised land. He's the commander of an army in Joshua 5. Judges, is t he is typified as the great lawgiver, the judge, the whole book. Ruth, the Messiah, would be a descendant of Boaz and Ruth. That's in Ruth 4, 12 through 17. That is a picture and type. So if you were a Jew back in the day, you open up the book of Ruth, you read about Ruth and Boaz and their relationship, and you say, oh, you know, it's interesting. I wonder if that Jesus guy fits that, that mode. They do the genealogy. The temple's still standing. They look at the scrolls. He is another sign. They do their homework. They look and see, or they didn't. Uh, he's typified in the life of Boaz, the Kingsman's Redeemer, pictured in the man uh, Boaz. Uh, first and second Samuel, I'm going to combine them. Messiah is exalted by God with power. Note that the Messiah is exalted by God with power. The Messiah would be a descendant of David. Another key indicator that a Jew would have to look at to see if I was talking with uh, Kathy Maggie this morning. If Sam over there was claiming to be the Messiah or Jesus is claiming the Messiah, did they come from uh, David? And as it says in uh, uh, Second Samuel. The Messiah would be the rock, and uh, he's typified by the life of David, a king who's in exile, and the life of Jonathan, who was his faithful friend. First and second kings, the life of Solomon itself is, uh, pictures the millennial reign of Christ, apparently the millennial reign, and then also the miracles of Elisha multiplying bread, which uh, Elisha did in 2 Kings 4.2, what Jesus did when he walked the earth. Second, first and second chronicles, the Messiah would be from the tribe of Judah. Another thing they could look at, typified in Solomon's temple and in the wisdom of Solomon. Ezra, typified in the person of Zerubbabel, the rebuilder of the temple. Uh, now we know Jesus didn't rebuild a physical temple. He rebuilt the real temple in the new Jerusalem on high, where there is a holy of holies of permanent stance, uh, where God is accessed by all who are his. So he is, a, he is typified by Zerubbabel, uh, typified in the person of Nehemiah in Nehemiah, typified in Esther in the person of Mordecai, typified in the sufferings of Job and the blessings that would follow 
uh, Job being a man of sorrows. When we get to the Psalms, I'm just going to read the passages. The Messiah would be the Son of God. That's Psalms 2-7. He would be resurrected, Psalm 16. He would be despised and crucified, Psalm 22, which may speak to Jesus' early life, too, uh, which is an interesting interpretation. Vernon McGee gave that to me when I was uh, a young Christian, and I just remember it always, that t- Psalms 22 could be speaking of him when he was, you know, between his 12th year and 30th year. Uh, the Messiah be, would be hated without a cause, Psalm 69.4. He would be Lord seated at the right hand of God, Psalms 110, 1 and 5, which is the most oft-quoted scripture in the New Testament of Jesus uh, when it says, sit here on my right side. Uh, the Messiah would be in the line of Melchizedek, who had no father and no mother, no beginning or ending of days, typifying the Messiah's endlessness uh, and, and eternality as um, the Word made flesh. Uh, the Messiah would be the stone rejected by the Jews, Psalms 118-22. And then there's a bunch of Messianic Psalms. There are 2, 8, 16, 22, 45, 69, 89, 109, 110, and 118, all picturing the Messiah, Jesus Christ, not just the Messiah, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, the prophecy of Jesus Christ uh, being equal to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes say the Messiah would be from everlasting. That's Proverbs 8. The Messiah, again, would be the Son of God, Proverbs 30, and typified in the wisdom of God, Proverbs 8 again. Song of Solomon is typified in the bridegroom's love for and marriage to his bride, which we are seeing uh, 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 manifested here in Revelation uh, 19, in fact. And then Isaiah, of course, there's a number of them, and Isaiah has so many that speak. That's why uh, um, Isaiah is so prevalent as being a prophetic utterance of the Messiah quickly. Uh, He would be born a virgin, now, that's disputed by higher critics because the word virgin, Alma, in Hebrew is a, um, supposed to be um, a young maiden. And so they have said he was never a virgin. That goes back to all the early tales of everybody's myth-making. But uh, I think the Jews pretty well understood that she would not have been with a uh, man before. He would be God with us, Isaiah 7:14. He would be God and man. That's Isaiah 9, 6. Uh, the Messiah would have a sevenfold spirit upon him, Isaiah 11, 1 through 2, which somebody pointed out. There are seven spirits in Revelation chapter uh, 1, 2, or uh, 1 and 2, I think. What are those seven spirits? Well, Isaiah tells us he would have a sevenfold spirit upon him. Um, I, he would heal the blind, the lame, and the deaf, Isaiah 35. He would proceed, uh, be preceded by a forerunner, Isaiah 43. He would be a light to the Gentiles, 42.6. He would be despised by the Jewish nation, Isaiah 49.7. Uh, he would be whipped and beaten, Isaiah 56. He would die uh, as a guilt offering for sin, Isaiah 53.10. And he would be resurrected and live forever, Isaiah 53.10. Jeremiah and Lamentation, the Messiah would be God, Jeremiah 23, 6, with us. The Messiah would be called a righteous branch, uh, Jeremiah 23, and he would be our righteousness, meaning his righteous life is imputed to us upon faith, 
That is where we get our justification and sanctification, frankly, before God is by our faith upon this Messiah. Ezekiel, the Messiah, would be a descendant of David. Daniel, the Messiah, would be, the, that's Ezekiel 34. The Messiah would be the Son of Man given an everlasting kingdom. That's Daniel 7. Now, to that end here in Revelation, the everlasting kingdom, people bring that up. Well, how could he have come? He's got to come and he's going to establish a kingdom that won't end. And believing that it's going to be a, um, a material theocracy here upon the earth. And I say it is a, a spiritual, eternal kingdom, uh, but it comes down from heaven and that will never end. He's never going to lack for more and more people coming into his kingdom. It will be forever and it will last forever. Excuse me. Daniel also tells us the Messiah would come 483s after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. That's in Daniel 9.5. We did the math when we first started our study of Revelation and showed the math was dead on with uh, the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy there in 9.25. The Messiah would be killed, Daniel 9.6. He would be revealed as a stone and his kingdom that would roll forth and fill the earth. That's Daniel 2.34. And he would be typified as a fourth person walking in the fiery furnace, if you remember that story, where someone, I think it was Nebuchadnezzar, someone looks in, who was it, and says, um, that one's like unto the Son of God. There's, there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's a fourth one in there. And that one is kind of looks like the Son of God is what it said. So, again, a Jew would have known that. Um, Amos, God would darken the day at noon during the Messiah's death. And we read in that in the Gospels. We'll come to that. And then, of course, uh, Obadiah, is, he's just the mighty Savior. There's no verse. Jonah, he's typified as three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. That's the sign Christ gave. I'm not going to give this generation any signs but the sign of Jonah. And then Micah, he would be born in Bethlehem. That's Micah 5.2. Again, something else the Jews could have seen. What? He's, he's, where was he born? He's born, well, that fits. And he would be from everlasting. The Messiah would come from Timon at his glory. That is in Habakkuk. And uh, I can't explain that because I didn't take time to look it up. We jump to Haggai. The Messiah would visit, uh, the, Messiah would visit the second temple. And the Messiah would be priest and king in Zechariah. The Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's Zechariah 9.9. Again, the story of Steve Fulmer, my friend in school of ministry, a Jew. He was in, he was in a synagogue worshiping on Shabbat. And they read Zechariah. And he said, I've been to Jerusalem. Those ones riding donkeys anymore. He's already come. He had a recognition as a Jew here in this day and age. This is a fulfillment already, and it converted him, and he became a Christian, and a mighty fine one. Um, Messiah would be God, Zechariah 11. Messiah would be pierced. That's where we get the piercing in Zechariah 12.10. And then finally, Malachi, the Messiah, would appear at the temple in Malachi 3. If we look to the New Testament, and there's not, I'm going to read them. I think it's important to read them. Matthew tells us he's the son of David, the king of the Jews, the son of God, the bridegroom. Mark tells us the holy one of God, the servant, the king of Israel. These are the testimonies now of Christ. We've had the prophecies, now the testimonies. Luke says he's the horn of salvation, the consolation of Israel. 
John, of course, is where we really get some descriptions of the Messiah. The only begotten Son through his testimony, the Lamb of God, the bread of life, the light of the world, the I am, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, and the true vine all come from the testimony of John. Acts tells us he's the prince of life, the judge of the living and the dead, the just one, and again, the hope of Israel. The Romans says that he's the rock of offense. Remember the rock in the Old Testament? He now, Romans calls him the rock of offense, the deliverer, the Lord of the living and the dead, and the dead, and the root of Jesse. First and second Corinthians, he's the first fruits and he's the last Adam. Uh, Galatians, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians, the head over all things and the cornerstone. Philippians, the name above all names. Colossians, the image of the invisible God. The head of the body, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the hope of glory. First and second Thessalonians, he's the Lord of peace. First and second Timothy, the king of ages, the mediator. Titus, the blessed hope, the great God and savior. Philemon, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews, the heir of all things, the faithful high priest, the author and finisher of faith. James, the Lord of glory, the judge at the door. Peter, first and second, the living stone, the chief shepherd. First and second, third, John, the eternal life and the righteous. Jude, the only wise God, our savior. And then finally, Revelation, he is determined to be in that revelation. Uh, testimony, witness, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the Lord of the tribe of Judah, the Word of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and the bright morning star. So let's go back to this camera, you guys. So we have a really good working definition. I think that the prophecy and the testimony within that sacred book tells us that they are equal and they are interchangeable. The Jew of the Old Testament would have known the Messiah if they were seekers of spirit and truth, just like my friend Steve Fulmer recognized him in Zechariah. And the person who has the testimony and hears it from the apostles would also have enough evidence through their witness. So I think both ends are covered. At this point, John says, verse 11 through 15, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes, now we get one of the most beautiful descriptions of Christ post-ascension. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. We know that in John's gospel in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know First John, John opens up talking about the Word of God, and here he has revealed to him one riding on the horse. He describes him, and he says his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. This is the bride, you guys. Very, very different from the body today. It is a unique group of people. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. And with it, he would smite the nations. That's with the word of his mouth. 
and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of fierceness and wrath of God Almighty, and he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay, we're almost done. A few more pages. In this section, we see Christ proceeding out of an open heaven. He's on a white horse, which we talked about when the horses came through. We said on the white one was Jesus. Well, now it's come back to us. We're having a, a, a recapitulation of that. He's followed by armies of heaven, and he is wielding a sword in his mouth. Now, I've seen pictures drawn by imaginative artists where there's an actual sword coming out of Jesus' mouth while he's riding on the horse. I don't think that's what it is referring to. I think it refers to the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it cuts asunder when you read it to our soul. So that's what he is doing when he comes back upon this earth at that time. And it's a really beautiful description of Christ. We recall back a number of months ago, Josephus gives us a historical, secular account from spring of 66 AD. And shortly before the Jewish-Roman War started, Josephus writes, a star resembling a sword shone in the heavens. Uh, and where there were also many in Judea who saw chariots and soldiers running in the clouds. That's from a Jewish historian, what people were witnessing up in the heavens before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. This is what Josephus actually said. Thus were the miserable people persuaded by these deceivers, and such as belied God himself, while they did not attend nor give credit to the signs that were so evident and did so plainly foretell their future desolation, but like men infatuated, without either eyes to see or minds to consider, did not regard the denunciations that God made to them. Thus there was a star resembling a sword, which stood over the city, and a comet that continued a whole year. Signs in the heavens. Besides these, a few days after that feast, and the one and twentieth day of the month of Artemisius, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the amount of it would seem to be a fable were it not related by those who saw it and were not the events followed of it so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals. For before sunset, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running among the clouds and surrounding of cities. That's from Josephus War 653. So we have this, this picture of this war in heaven, that the one on horseback, Christ coming back with his armies in the clouds, reported by Josephus. First century Roman uh, historian Tacitus says, there had been seen hosts joining battle in the skies, the fiery gleam of arms, the temple illuminated by a sudden radiance from the clouds. That's in his histories, book five. Sam Storm, a fulfillment expert, says a sharp sword from his mouth is used to smite the nations and he rules with a rod of iron are all imageries found in Isaiah 49.2, 11.4, and Psalms 2.9. When he treads the winepress of God's wrath, this is drawn imagery from Isaiah 63, 2 through 6. 
and regarding the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, pure and white, following Christ on horses, people want to know, are they angels or are they humans? And the best argument for there being humans comes earlier in this chapter at verse 8, where it speaks of a company clothed in fine linen, white and pure, and there was no doubt that these were believers, for they are the bride emanating righteous deeds through that well, pure white clothes. But there's also some arguments in Revelation 15 that suggest it could be angels as well. Um, We know that uh, Jesus, uh, that it says in Zechariah, that the Lord will come with his holy ones with him. So it could be, there's some translations that include angels and holy ones with him. So it could be both were with him. It just depends on the translation that you read. Okay. Um, Just for time's sake, let me just read one more indication that this is speaking of events in 70 A.D. In Zechariah 14:7, we read, And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. This is in Zechariah 14:7. So that's a unique day, where at evening time there would be light. Josephus records a most interesting event that takes place uh, before Jerusalem is destroyed, he says, quote, On the eighth of the month of Xanthicus, before the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the ninth hour of the night, there shone round about the altar and the circumjacent buildings of the temple a light equal to the brightness of the day, which continued for the space of half an hour. That is a fulfillment of Zechariah 14.7. Uh, the idea that angels are involved, too, with Jesus coming on his white horse and the host riding in with him, that angels are involved, uh, comes from Matthew 16, where Jesus himself said, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, uh, and that he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So, I mean, that is just, forget about it. Uh, that's what he said, that's what it meant, and that's what happened. Now, the way that's explained away, as you probably well know, if you've been with us for any amount of time, is that they say the Son of Man coming in his kingdom was uh, when the day of Pentecost, not day of Pentecost, it's either the day of Pentecost fell, when the Holy Spirit fell, that was the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It's not literal. It's a spiritual thing that happened when the Holy Spirit fell. And or some say that it was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, I don't think either of those hold water as, as a plain interpretation of the words when Jesus says the Son of Man is going to come with his angels. And let me tell you, there's going to be some standing here who won't taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, which is always associated with his second coming, which is always associated with destruction and reward, which we see in 70 AD. Um, and I think uh, that wraps it up. We're going to finish up 19 next week, a few verses, and then we're going to enter into our time in 20, 21, and 22, and we will finish up Revelation probably by the end of the year. <laughs> Someone just said, which year? Okay. 
Oh, any comments or questions? Thank you, brother. Oh, okay. Thanks for telling me. Um, so I have a question. First of all, where is that scripture found where you just quoted? Many of you are standing here. Can you tell me what the reference is? Yeah, uh, when he, Jesus is talking to them? Yeah. Yes, it is. That's a good question. It's in Matthew 16, 27, 28. Matthew 16, okay. And he doesn't say many. He says, there are some standing here who will not. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I stand corrected. Um, also, in Genesis chapter 3, Yeah. I really have a big question about this. Maybe other people have questions too. I don't know. Uh, it says in 22, uh, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us uh, to know good and evil. So what do you? What does that mean, us? Because we know there's one God. Yeah, there's there's five languages, five passages where us is used. Let us make man in our own image. Yeah, and most of those passages by the people who are much smarter than me, even people who want those passages to talk about a Trinity, mm -hmm. say they are not Trini Trinity based. That they are talking either about the hosts of heaven, which help God, and the angels had free will and free agency and knowledge and or it's speaking of God is speaking in King's English um, Mary and I have been watching this show called Borges and the Pope of the uh, Borges Pope he speaks of himself once he becomes Pope as we we are not happy today uh, we shall go here they, they speak in a plural and that's a royal way of speaking mm -hmm. so that's the second way they talk about what God is saying but uh, that's how I would understand it. I, I believe it's probably the angel way. And we did a show or a study on that once. And I think we gave a lot of evidence be, to prove that. I'd have to go back and watch that. Thanks, yeah. Sean. You're awesome. You're welcome, Patrick. My name's Jeff. I got oh, a question Jeffrey. for you, Sean. Uh, well, do you know what the reference is, the Zechariah reference that your friend was... Uh, you know, talking oh, about when he talked about donkey? The, the donkey, yeah. Yeah. That reference is um, Zechariah 9 9, fulfilled in Matthew 21 6 9. And you're saying that the fulfillment of it was in the Passover celebration? No, I'm saying the fulfillment was when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. Which was the, no, I guess that would be Palm Sunday. So yeah. that was a week ago. Yeah. yeah, the Christians celebrated that a week ago. Yeah. So in 9.9, 9, it says, uh, I don't know, I haven't read it yet, but. Zechariah 9 9? Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm an 8. I think it's in the Old Testament. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So that is the 
um, Palm Sunday that the Christians celebrate. Okay. Now, that seems like it was fulfilled, in which this influenced your friend to become a Christian who is a Jew? He was a Jew. When he read it in, in uh, the Old Testament, Zechariah 9.9, when they read it in the temple, he said, they don't ride donkeys in Jerusalem anymore. I've been there with my family. He says they're driving around in, in VWs. And he said, this has to have been fulfilled. There must have been the Messiah has already come. You understand that? It doesn't have anything to do with preterism. It just has to do with a Jew realizing that the Old Testament's prophecies do testify of Christ. So in other words, that wasn't a future latter-day prophecy. It was something that he recognized that was fulfilled at that time Yeah. when he would have been on the earth. When Jesus was on the earth, yeah. So... <clears throat> Let me ask you about when he, Jesus was baptized. As far as I'm concerned, his baptism was a, what is the right word? Is it a foreshadowing or a precursor to his resurrection? Hmm. So when he was baptized, it was like as if he was buried and came out of the water. and It's like being resurrected. So okay. that is something that was fulfilled after, you know, like it was, a, like I said, a precursor. Well, the scriptures that we just read, Revelation 19.11, it says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the one that's in Zechariah that prophesies about the Palm Sunday is a precursor to that event happening at some time where he comes back on the white horse and makes war. Okay. So the event that happened on Palm Sunday was a foreshadowing of this event, which is, I believe, a future event. Congratulations. So... <laughs> The, the point I'm making is if he had come back in 70 AD, why wouldn't he have made war with whoever was around him and stopped the destruction of Jerusalem? Because it says here that he came back to judge and make war. Because he was making war and judging Jerusalem, who was the whore of Babylon. They had rejected him. So him coming back at that time upon them, who had the prophets, who had the testimony, who had the Messiah, that town itself had him and killed him. So he came back, and that's why it's so applicable to that day and age. For him to come back and make war on a Gentile nation who never had him as the Messiah, either in prophecy or in testimony, to me doesn't make any sense at all. But it makes great sense that that is contextually applied to 70 AD and the destruction of of Israel, really. But that explanation sounds to me like you're saying he worked in conjunction or in cooperation with Rome. Definitely. To, to destroy. Definitely. God worked definitely and used let Rome do what it did. Yeah. But um, one of the scriptures that I believe the Jews were waiting for it to be fulfilled. It's found in Malachi chapter 4. Mm -hmm. Do you want me to read it or do you have a Bible up there? Well, it's all here, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. 
I can't cite a verse of my life depended on it. It's Malachi chapter 4, I think it's verse 5. Get to it. Um, it's four and five. It says, Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him, in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Okay, so it is chapter four, verse five. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So, as far as you're concerned, 70 AD was the great and dreadful day of the Lord, right? The great and dreadful, dreadful day of the Lord began when John the Baptist showed up. And it started then. That's why he said the axe is laid at the root of the tree. That's the great and dreadful day. Repent for the day is at hand. John the Baptist is noted by Luke 20 where he, it is said, Jesus tells them, he's Elijah. He's the one that Malachi was prophesying of. Jesus told the Jews that? Yes. yes. Because I thought John the Baptist said he was not Elijah. When he, he was said, asked, I am not the Elijah, but I come in the power and spirit of Elijah. That's what he was saying. But perhaps you and I should sit down and talk, because I'm not sure. Even though it is Resurrection Sunday, I don't think we're going to raise these people from the dead if we don't stop. Well, <clears throat> the um, you know the the I, I thought that that was the reason why a lot of Jews didn't recognize Jesus as who he was because they were still waiting for Elijah to return. Yeah, that, that may be true. I don't know about uh, Judaism, but I know that Jesus clearly tells us, hey, if you will accept it, he's the Elijah we're looking for. And it's in Luke. Pretty sure it's 20. It might be 22. And, um, well, let me just add, by <clears throat> to this day, I think they leave a table or a chair, an empty chair at a at their table yeah. when they have a meal. Yeah, they do. The Passover uh, Seder. Uh-huh. For Elijah to come back. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Okay. Anybody else? All right. Thanks, you guys, for coming on this, this holy day, holiday. Let's pray. Lord, we pray you'll fill us with your spirit and help us to discern uh, the scriptures. Grateful for people who have spoken, Patrick and Jeff and brought things to consider and reflect upon. Pray that we'll be able to exit here and be better Christians, full of faith and, and love, and, um, and share that light with uh, everyone that you lead us to share with by your Spirit. We pray for Claire, who passed away Tuesday night. We pray for uh, Sandra and her broken heart over her sister's passing. She was only in her early 60s. We pray for Liz and her family, peace and comfort for the loss of her mother, Sandra. And uh, we pray for Robert H., just diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, healing, peace, and comfort for Annette, Mike, David, all recovering, too, from cancer. Gracie, who is in her 30th week of chemo, Lord, we pray on that child, and we pray that you'll bless her uh, parents who are dealing with this uh, dreaded uh, disease in her body and all the people who have suffered and have uh, been afflicted by cancer and have passed from cancer, the families and friends and uh, we just pray, Lord, that your hand will be upon us and that we will be able to stay strong with our eyes glued to the eternal picture and that uh, the short term will not consume us with uh, dread or with hopelessness. We pray for Patrick's brother, Paul, that he will come into a relationship with Jesus, that he will realize he needs the author and finisher of the faith and uh, that there is no way to have a relationship with you, God, without him. 
We pray for all of us now as we exit out and do the different things that may come before us, that your spirit will be with us. And uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Oh,